So good to be joining in with God's people, singing His praise this morning. And uh, now I have the honor of standing here before you guys, opening God's Word, and hopefully encouraging us in our faith, in our, in our lives, in our practice today. <clears throat> Sorry, hang on one second here. Mm. One day soon I'll make it through a service without sipping on that water bottle. All right. Today, um, a little bit different, we finished our series in Romans uh, last week, and um, we are moving on to a new series that I've called What We Believe and Why We Believe It. And it's going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally at Faith, our practice is to take books of the Bible, to open them up, and to go line by line and verse by verse and see what it is that God has for us in His Word um, at any different point, because we do believe the Scripture is God-breathed and it is uh, good and profitable for teaching and reproof and rebuke. And so that's why we do that. We want to be a church that's committed to God's Word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Today, though, we're going to, uh, as we dig into this series and we, we start to look at, um, we start to move into this new year, um, we're taking a slightly different approach and we're going to tackle some topics that I think are relevant to the life of the church right now. And I think they're relevant to us as a body of believers as we look at who we are and we ask the question of, why are we here? Why have we showed up uh, to this place this morning uh, to, to come here? Because, again, you look at the snow outside. It would have been awfully nice to just pull the covers over your head and go back to sleep and wake up and watch a football game or something this afternoon, right? That would have been nice, wouldn't it? But there's a reason and a purpose why we're here, and it's good. It's good to be here, right? It's good to brave this uh, half inch of snow and to, to be here in this place, right? Hey, if you were in Georgia, you would have braved some serious weather to get here this morning for this, so... Just, um, just appreciate that. So that's why this series uh, that we're going to be going through probably over the course of the next 10 weeks or so leading up to Easter is called What We Believe and Why We Believe It. You see, Baptist Church, we're a Baptist church, and historically Baptist churches have been described as confessional churches. They're a confessional group of people. And what I mean when I say that Baptists are confessional is that Baptists like to write down the things that we believe, and we like to put them into documents, and we state what we believe with the references behind it to Scripture. That's been historically true for Baptist churches, right? <clears throat> and we do this to not only tell others what it is exactly we believe when we have these confessions, but the goal is also to take these truths of the faith, to take these truths of our faith in Christ, to distill those things down into statements that we can use to articulate when the time comes to defend our faith and to tell people what it is we believe. And not only that, but to take those things that we say we believe and to back them up with actual Scripture. So that it's not just what I think, it's not just what you think, but it is actually truly us saying we believe this because God says this is what we should believe. Amen? Amen. I think we've seen uh, with the rise of attractional churches and the seeker-sensitive movement a uh, push away from confessions and uh, they view those things as outdated and as unneeded, as something that's too traditional, something that doesn't uh, attract non-believers to come in, right? But I think it's the exact opposite, right? I think these things are incredibly helpful. I think these are incredibly helpful for us as believers to remind ourselves of things we believe, but then also to share those things we believe with unbelievers too, right? There's a reason why we have these confessions. There's a reason why we have a statement of faith as a church. We have faith we haven't necessarily affirmed one of the historic Baptist confessions, but we do have on our website a statement of faith for the world to see. 
we have a list of things that we have said, these are the core beliefs, the core elements of what this church is, what we believe to be true about God, and what our faith and practice as Christians looks like. Right? And that's why we're here. That's why we're doing this sermon series on what we believe and why we believe it as we look at these elements of our statement of faith. And that short introduction to this sermon series has to have a little bit of, a, of an asterisk now because um, as we get started on this series, today just so happened to be Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? And if you saw the uh, little uh, email announcement that I sent out, Sanctity of Life Sunday was a Sunday that was uh, designated back, uh, I think it was 1982, um, by President Reagan, right, that commemorates around the time of year when Roe v. Wade was... Um, was released by the court uh, to say, we believe human life is, is uh, sanctified by God, has meaning and value and purpose beyond just what human beings say it is. God has imbued humanity with his image and is worthy to be respected and, digni- and is dignified and uh, is worthy to be protected, right? And so this has been a Sunday that's been going on for the last uh, 30 years to remember that very thing. So as we start a sermon series called What We Believe and Why We Believe It, and to start on a day that is designated as Sanctity of Life Sunday, it only made sense for us to start with what we believe as a church on the Sanctity of Life. What do we believe as a church on this issue that sits here and riles our culture and divides people, this issue of abortion, right? This is not an issue that goes without controversy, is it? No, and it's been in the news It's been at the heart of so many conversations of this past year. And so that's why it's important as we start this series and we think of Sanctity of Life Sunday, we take a look at the Scripture and we see exactly um, who God is, we see who we are, who He's made us to be, and we see that there truly is a sanctity of human life, that there is a meaning and a value and a purpose to human life that requires us to respect it and protect it and not discard it as if it is meaningless and purposeless. All right. With that, I'm going to go ahead and read for us um, a little piece of Psalm 139 and a little piece of Genesis 1, okay? And this is going to be our text. I know this is going to be much more of a topical sermon today as we explore these topics, but I think we have to ground everything we do in the text. So let me go ahead and read Psalm 139 at verse 13 for us. If you have your Bible, feel free to open up and, and read along with me. We're going to read verses 13 to 16. Here David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me, my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's go ahead and flip back to Genesis 1. We're going to read the very end of Genesis 1. As God creates man and see what he says about this act. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The Bible says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. All right. So as we ponder these texts today, we can go ahead and click to the next slide. That'd be great. As we ponder these texts today, I think we're going to go ahead and be confronted with our main idea right off the bat, right? Our main idea that I think we have to wrestle with today as we think of the sanctity of life and we ponder the words that we've just read is that God has made man distinct from the rest of creation and that the life of man has intrinsic value that has been given directly from God. I think that's incredibly evident in those two short passages we just read. That is the truth of humankind and what God has done in making man, right? God has made him distinct from the rest of creation, and this life has intrinsic value from God. And we want to explore this main idea in these texts today because, because of that question why we have at the end there. Because like all belief, like all the things that we say we believe, there are consequences to how we view this, right? There are consequences. Our view on the value of human life has consequences. This is true with all of our beliefs. They have consequences. They have um, things that cause us to act in certain ways when we say we believe it, right? If I said I believe uh, Coca-Cola was poison, my wife's going to give me a thumbs up here. If I said I believe that, guess what? I'm not going to drink Coca-Cola, right? I'm going to stay away from the sugar and the caffeine and what it does to my body. Very clearly, anyone who knows me, I don't believe that, okay? I probably need to start thinking that way a little bit, right? But my beliefs have consequences. And we see that right here. Our belief on why human life is valuable and where this value comes from is going to have massive ramifications for how we think about one of the most controversial topics that our culture is wrestling with today. So why are we here talking about the Sanctity of Life Sunday? Why are we looking at these scriptures to challenge ourselves and our understanding of the value and the meaning of human life? Why are we asking these questions? I believe the answer to that question, I believe that it is the root cause of this crisis of abortion that is in our culture today. I believe that looking to answer this question with a biblical understanding of the intrinsic value that God has given every person's life is where we are going to find an end to the controversy that exists in our culture. This is a question that Western culture struggles with. And because we struggle with it um, in answering what the value of human life is, it creates a uh, consistency and a, a, a gap in our consistency and our logic and our reason for why we view our lives as valuable at all. The problem is we all know human life is valuable, right? Everybody knows it. Everybody believes it. We can't give a reason for it because we don't have God at the foundation of the center of it. But we all believe it. And I think I can prove it to you that we all believe it, right? It wasn't that long ago. It was only a few weeks ago we had one of these cultural moments, right? These moments where something happens on TV or in the, in the news cycle and it captivates us, our entire nation, and it's all anyone's talking about, 
wherever you go, right? You probably will remember this moment that I'm talking of. There was a football game on Monday Night Football between the Bengals and the Bills, right? Biggest game of the season. It was built up. Huge. And early on, early on in the beginning of this game, there was a tackle made. And it was just a routine play. It didn't look like anything crazy or bad. And the player who made the tackle jumped up, took a couple of steps, and then collapsed back on the field. It wasn't a bad hit. Football is a violent game. People get hurt all the time in that game, in that playing that game. But what looked like just a normal old tackle, he fell over backwards on the field. And what proceeded to be seen was a series of events that is terrifying if you're watching sporting events, right? You have a player laying on the field being given CPR, having an AED, being defibrillated in the middle of the field to try to restart his heart. This is a man who is laying in the middle of 70,000 people dying. This is a man on national TV with his teammates around him in tears, fearing for his life. Why? Because his life is valuable. His life means something. Right? And no one wants to see his life taken for some frivolous purpose like playing a football game. If somehow you missed that story, I want to let you know the good news is thankfully that player, DeMar Hamlin, is back home and he's recovering today. That is good news. But I think in this moment where everyone was afraid that this player was so close to dying on the field from something as frivolous as a sporting event, we saw something in human beings and in our thinking and in our culture today that it struggles to vocalize and it struggles to find a logical, consistent reason why we feel that way. We're worried about DeMar Hamlin. We're worried about his life. We want to see him alive and well because he has the image of God in him. And we don't want to see his life wasted for something frivolous and meaningless. When it comes to human life, when it comes to seeing someone suffering and potentially dying in front of our eyes, we see this meaning and this value and this dignity. We see a sanctity to human life that is undeniable, even to a culture that has no reason to believe it, even to a culture that uh, uh, effectively at every turn denies that there is a sanctity to human life. And it's amazing how all of a sudden in that moment, everyone felt the need to pray. Everyone felt the need to come out and to say, pray for tomorrow. Pray. Everyone felt the need here to mourn. Everyone felt that sense of worry. Everyone felt that sense of concern. Because until we have moments like this, we take for granted the God-given value inherent in the life of every single human being. And as our culture continues its post-Christian slide, this value, the scary thing, is that this value becomes lost on us as people, right? And that hole in our worldview that tells us people have a value and worth and dignity that's to be respected. The hole in our worldview that tells us to do that is lost. It widens, right? It gets bigger and bigger. And it creates a situation where we can't answer the reason why, and ultimately, once we can't answer the reason why we value human life, it leads us to devalue it and to lose value for it. Because without an understanding that man is made in the image of God, 
that there is value and meaning to the lives of human, human beings that is given to us by our Creator. Our culture is left grasping at whatever explanation it can find to define when someone is human and when they're worthy of rights, when they're worthy of respect. It's just up to the culture. We hear this all the time now, too, when the argument of, well, when is a life human? The favorite topic now is, well, if the mother wants it. That's when we're human, is if somebody wants us. That's a scary place to be, church. That's a scary place to be. And this is why we're here talking about this today. This is why we have this Sanctity of Life Sunday that we're looking at, right? You can go ahead and click the next slide too, Bob. Or, this is why we're here talking about Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? Because as our culture moves farther and farther from God in any kind of biblical worldview, it further erodes so many truths of reality and of God's creation that right now we're taking for granted, right? We're taking them for granted. We're taking for granted that people understand this and they know this, and they don't. They don't. And I think that reason, admitting that, that we don't know that as a culture, that's the reason why we mourn right now. 60 million murdered babies since Roe. There have been a million, over a million babies a year aborted since Roe v. Wade. That's a massive number. Let's think about that. Had Roe not been sat there and dictated to us as law by the Supreme Court, we would have 60 million more people, more than that, because those babies would have had babies by now, right? Probably 100 million people missing from the face of this earth right now, from this nation, because of that. There's 100 million people missing because children in the womb were told that they didn't have a right to life, right? These numbers are staggering. These numbers are horrific. And possibly the saddest thing of all of this, that these numbers, that we just see them tallying, we see them run on, right, is that it creates this horrible sense of malaise and apathy in us, right? Because, well, what's, what's another one if there's already been 60 million? Joseph Stalin was famous for saying, and you don't usually hear Joseph Stalin quotes in the church service, right? But he was famous for saying that the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. Stalin would know. He perpetrated the murder of tens of millions of people. And I think the sad thing is we've succumbed to this type of thinking. We've succumbed to this type of thinking when it comes to abortion, right? We see 60 million, and sometimes it's hard for us to be sad, to be frustrated, to be tired of seeing that there was one more that was done the other day. That's why we're here talking about the sanctity of life, of human life today. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're asking, what do we believe about this? Because we have to be roused from our sleep, church. We have to wake up. And we have to be ready to do intellectual and spiritual battle against the slaughter of humans who cannot protect themselves. That's our introduction for us right there, right? That's why we're here. That's what we're talking about, the sanctity of human life. That's why we do battle against abortion. 
That's why we take the gospel to these places. And I think the next thing we have to ask is what does God say about human life? Why do we have this sadness? Why do we have this frustration? Why do we have this anger over this loss of life? I think let's take a quick look at our text to explore that, right? Psalm 139 is a very well-known text when it comes to this issue. I'm sure me reading it to you is not the first time you've heard it. I think you've probably seen it at pregnancy resource centers and other uh, clinics and things that support that. And I think it's used in this context because we see this intimate picture, David painting, of Yahweh's involvement in this process of creating human life. See, Psalm 139, when David starts at verse 1, he proclaims this. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. David makes it clear in the psalm that God is interested in his life. God is there with him over the course of his life. God is at work in the life of David. He has not left him. He has not forsaken him. But he is with him and he knows him. Right? This God is personal. He is intimate. He is close. And no matter where David goes now, whether he is fleeing from God's presence, whether he's trying to run from God, right? Or whether David was dead and he's buried in the earth, and this is me summarizing Psalm 139 right here, or whether David says, I'm lost in the sea, or whether he has been covered by the darkest of night, there is no place David can flee from the presence of God. That is a beautiful thing that he is saying in this psalm of praise right here. He is reminding himself, God, you are with me wherever I go. There is nowhere I can hide from me. You know me. You know me, Lord. Now in verse 13, where we started reading earlier, David starts to describe a place where no one would ever be able to know David other than God. There is one place that no one could possibly have known David, right? There is a place that is hidden away from the world. There is this place that the world can't see and can't act, but God is. God is there. God is present. God is acting. The Lord is in this place, and he is working for David's good, even in the womb of his mother. This is where we get this picture that David is painting for us, that even inside his mother's womb, God was working for and with David. God says in verse 13 that what? God has knitted him together in his mother's womb. Knitting something together is something that requires like hands-on work, right? It requires intricate work and detail. Margie's giving me a, a big head shake back there. I'm glad I got the idea of knitting uh, done because I've not done a lot of it myself. I've only seen people do it, right? But it takes work, intricate movement of your hands and coordination. God is doing something intricate and close and passionate. There's something going on here that's not just random chance. It's not just happenstance. It's not an afterthought of God. God is actively working for a purpose. Right? God's not doing a science experiment and just ends up with a David here. Right? This is not a test tube. We're seeing what God can produce. He isn't mixing and matching parts to see if he can put together a David. 
No, this is God taking intimate steps, taking intimate action, actions of love and care that requires purposeful, hands-on actions to create David in his mother's womb, knitting him together. David describes this as the depths of the earth, right? What deeper part of the earth do you have than inside your mother's womb? There's darkness and there's secrecy in there inside his mother's womb that no one else can see. No one else can work. No one else can act. It is God who is working to bring the pieces of human life and knitting them together to produce this human being that is David. God has intricately woven together this person. And this picture of David being grown in his mother's womb gives us a picture of something that goes beyond any kind of just normal sort of natural event, right? This isn't a chemistry project where we we mix vinegar and baking soda and we get fizz. There's purpose and meaning behind it. There's a a beautiful picture being painted of God working. And don't miss the purpose behind every bit of what's going in here. And of every day of the life of this little one, David is describing while he is still in his mother's womb. How much of this imagery of David in his mother's womb being knit together contrasts with the picture of what our culture puts forth as going on in the mother's womb? What do people always call, what do, what do um, pro-abortion people, right, what do they always call the baby? What is it? Fetus? A tissue? It's a clump of cells. Anything we can find to sit there and take the title of human away from that, to take the dignity that that baby deserves, right? It's just a clump of cells, right? That's what the culture says. People talk about human life inside the womb as though it's some kind of cancerous growth that the doctor is free to remove if only we would allow him to do so. That's a stark, stark contrast from what we just saw in this description David gave us, right? This is a stark contrast to the the view of human life in a womb. From the view of something that is cold and like as if it's a laboratory experiment to the view that God gives us that there is or this view that says that there's nothing intrinsically meaningful or valuable to this clump of cells that has just taken up residence somehow mysteriously inside this body of a woman. There's a massive contrast to the picture that we see God place or make in David. This view of warmth and of love and of care of a God who is working to knit life together in the womb of a mother who has a purpose and a plan to this new, unique human life. So much so that the author who is describing the work of Psalm in Psalm 139, he praises God. Because why? He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Obviously, every baby does not turn out like David did, right? But this text and the way the Holy Spirit stirs David to write about, know, about God knowing him and who he, who he is, even in the womb, and God seeing him, even in the womb, and God forming and shaping his life, even in the womb of his mother, I think gives us a picture that we see human life having meaning and value and purpose to it that extends beyond any sort of just materialistic explanation, right? 
There's a reason why that baby's there. We see this picture David paints, an affirmation that human life in the womb is still human life and that it does not go unseen. It does not go forgotten by God. I said a second ago, does every baby who's ever been conceived turn out like David? No. It doesn't. My wife and I have experienced two miscarriages in our relationship. But just because the lives of these babies ended at 12 weeks and not 100 years does not mean the short lives they lived were any less valuable or meaningful. And it doesn't denigrate their personhood because we never got to hold them in our arms. And it doesn't mean God failed. Because I believe what verse 16 says. Look back at verse 16 with me. David writes, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. I believe that. I believe that God has written my story. And it's his, it's his story to tell. I know it sounds weird, maybe, but I try to do it to bring comfort to our family, but sometimes I'll talk to my kids about this. I'll talk to my kids, and I'll tell them, guys, you know, one day I might not be around anymore. Right, Timothy? I tell you this, don't I? I tell you guys, I might not be around one day. Right? I tell them that as long as it's up to me, as long as I have something to say in it, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here for you guys right? But there's going to come a day when the pages of my book that God has written are going to come to an end. That's going to happen. And just because my book ends does not make God any less good. The fact that I have had any pages written on, frankly, I count as proof of God's goodness to me and to my family. And I don't know how my days will end, and I don't know how my kids' days will end, but I do know they will, and I know that that fact doesn't change that God has placed an intrinsic value on their lives and mine. And that He is good for what He's given us. And I think this applies by extension to the lives of all human beings, born and not yet born. This requires me to respect God's creation and His design. Right? I don't know what your book looks like. I don't know what God's written on the pages. It may be 100 years. It may be 50 years. It may be 50 days. We don't know. That doesn't change the dignity and the respect and the value that us as Christians should be conveying onto the life of every single human being. We talk about this right now because I think it's important for us to speak up and to speak the truth about God's design. Speak about his desire for us as a people to respect this sanctity of life that he has bestowed on humans, right? Because he has intricately woven us together, every one of us. The second text that we read earlier today, I think it affirms what we've seen is true from Psalm 139. 
We see God speaking and acting in this passage in Genesis in such a way that he sets man apart as special and unique amongst his creation. That's why the second point that we have up there, or the first one, we have God's intricate work of creating human life. We see that, right? We see God working in the womb. The second point we have, what does God say about human life? We see God placing an intrinsic value on that life in Genesis 1, all the way back to creation. Verse 26 in Genesis 1 says this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man is not like every other creature that God has placed on the earth, is he? Man, God has said here, holds a special place of rule and care over these other creatures and over creation. And man gets this special place and these special responsibilities because Adam was proved himself to God and just showed himself to be so good. Right? No, I'm a heretic if I say that, okay? That's a test. It's a test for you all. No. God gives this gift to Adam because it's his to bestow onto him. Because he says, Adam, I'm going to make you and I'm going to make you look like me. You didn't do anything to deserve this or earn this. This is just who I've made you to be, Adam. This is who I've made you to be. Man is made in God's image and his likeness. Man is given these attributes like creativity and morality and reason and love and compassion. And he's given these things to look like the one who has made him. He's given these things and he's called an image bearer because as God is not walking in the cool of the garden of the day, Adam is there amongst creation to reflect these images of his creator to his creation. In this world, man has special responsibilities that he has to carry out, responsibilities that have been given to him by God. And not only does he have these responsibilities, but God tells him what would have been or what would have been one man at this point, right? So he's got this responsibility given to him by God, and now here you have this one man that's being imbued with this responsibility. It's told, be fruitful and multiply. So it's not all on the back of just this one man, is it? Right? God tells him, Adam, you're going to tend to my creation, and I want you to make lots more of you. And I want there to be you. I want there to be my image over the entirety of the earth tending to and caring for and having dominion over this world. Be fruitful and multiply. In case there is any mystery as to what that means, it means have babies. I know I say that jokingly, but I've seen people twist that text and make it about money. It's not. Be fruitful and multiply means, Adam, have babies. Fill the earth. Have dominion over the earth. It means that God wants us to bring forth more image bearers into the world. God has given this blessing to man at creation that Adam shall not be the only human working on this task God has given him. No, God has blessed man, and he said, you're going to get a great blessing. 
you're going to get a great blessing from bringing forth more of you. Right? This is where we get that second part of our main idea from today. God has made man distinct from the rest of creation. God has made man distinct from the rest of creation. The rest of creation procreates. They're bringing forth other of their kind, right? But they're different. These ones that are coming forth from Adam are image bearers. They're different. They're not just your herd of sheep or your herd of goats. They're not just your school of fish. I always think it's funny from a, a naturalistic perspective uh, when people talk about evolution and how people are, are evolved in such a way. And I, I, I laugh at that notion because I think about uh, my friend who used to have a small farm and they raised, he raised goats, right? And he told me this story about his goat that had a baby. And it was a goat, sheep, I don't know, I'm not a farmer, right? But anyway, the point being a small four-legged animal had a baby in the middle of December, in the middle of teen degree temperatures in the middle of rain this animal has a baby in the dirt in the cold in the rain in the winter this small animal is born and it gets up and it walks off and it nurses on its mom and it's fine you know what would happen if that was my wife with my baby in the middle of winter that baby wouldn't be around human beings are horribly adapted we are not evolved, right? We are here to have dominion over the creation. Sorry, a bit of a side note, but I always thought this was funny. But it, it, it hits at the idea that we are unique amongst creation. Humans require care. And once we're grown, we become the caretakers. And this is that idea, right? This is that second idea. God has intrinsic value on human life. It is unique, it is different, it is set apart, and he's told us that. If we look forward in Genesis 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel, and we see intrinsic value in the life of man. Just a few uh, verses, or just a, a little bit past Genesis 1, don't we? We see the intrinsic value of man as compared to the value of other creatures God has created. See, in Genesis 3 and 4, we see animals die for the first time, don't we? We see animals die for the first time in the history of creation. And not much is said on that matter, is it? Right? But if we read forward into chapter 4, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And I'm pretty sure this is a story we're all familiar with, right? What does Cain do? Murders his brother. Cain spills the blood of his brother. And God tells Cain, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain has ended the life of his brother Abel. And God comes to Cain and confronts him for this evil action that he has taken. And he pronounces curses and punishment upon Cain because he has gone to this length and he has ended his brother's life. Cain's killed before. Or Abel has killed before, right? This is not the first time they've killed. They're killing animals and eating animals. Abel brings a sacrifice of his firstborn, right? So death and killing animals is not foreign to them. But yet here Cain kills his brother. And what, what is the response of God that we have? Your brother's blood cries out to the ground for I know what you've done. Why have you done this thing? Why have you fallen into sin? Why have you taken the life of your brother? The life of Cain's brother Abel had a different kind of value and worth to it. It had a sanctity to it that was extinguished by Cain. 
And Abel's blood cried out to God for, because of his sin and because of the injustice that had just been perpetrated. Human beings we see in Psalm 139 and here in Genesis 1 are not like the rest of creation. They have been made in such a way that they are distinct and different from God's other creation. There is a value and a worth to the lives inherent in God's design. The lives of people have this intrinsic value to them, which means we have responsibilities. There's implications for us and how we treat other people. We should be treating people with dignity and respect regardless of how other humans view their lives. This means <clears throat> all the way down to the womb, we have a respect for the life that's been created. And we want to give that life its dignity and what it deserves with the, with the, with the life that God has intended for it. These principles of the Christian faith, once understood and put into practice, have beliefs that sit at the heart of so many positive changes in society, too. Right? This idea that there is value and worth and sanctity to human life, it was used by Christians to see the Atlantic slave trade ended, right? We know the story of William Wilberforce, the guy who pushed for the end of slavery in, in England. It's this idea that human life is made in the image of God and has dignity and value to it. Saw slavery ended in the Western world. These truths are what sat at the heart of the civil rights movement. These truths uh, work to see an end to segregation, to legal, the legal and sanctioned practice of treating some people as less because of the color of their skin. It was these truths that men have dignity and worth because they're made in God's image, right? That cause us to work these things out and to say, yes, I shouldn't discriminate against you. You shouldn't be kept out of places just because you look different from me. Because you are made in God's image too. I think the affirmation of the affirmation and proclaiming these, these truths ultimately too is going to be a key piece in the battle to see abortion and the cultural crisis that it is today ended in our country too. And that's why we're talking about this. That's why we're looking at the sanctity of human life. That's why we're answering these questions in the scripture. And that's why we're reminding of our, ourselves that this is what we believe about who um, God has made people to be. All right, five tell. Let's see if I can get done in the next 10 minutes. What's our response then? Right? What is our response? We know why we're here. We know what we're doing. We've seen what God says about this and why we, why we believe what we believe. How do we respond? I think the first thing we have to do is that we have to acknowledge that at the foundation of this is a spiritual battle. Let me read uh, from Ephesians 6, uh, verse 10 for you. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, the, uh, church in Ephesus, says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Abortion and what is taking place right now with our culture as we, as we wrestle with this question of human life and its value and its worth, it's a scheme of the devil. It's a scheme of the devil we're wrestling against right now. The devil is a liar, the Bible makes that clear, and he has perpetrated a lie to our culture about the nature of human beings at this stage of their life. 
He's perpetrated the lie that it's just a clump of cells, that it's just tissue, that it's not actually a human life worthy of dignity and respect. This is why we focused on the two passages we did today. This is why our focus on this topic of the sanctity of human life is what we believe and why we believe it. What we believe is we believe that there is a sanctity to human life. Amen? There is something special and unique about human life that has been imparted onto us by God. And the spiritual forces of evil have put the lie into motion that what is growing inside a mother is not actually human life. It only becomes human life if the mother wants it, right? And that's the line. That's the line that's been drawn commonly today. And in this act of abortion, where a doctor, one who is supposed to be dedicated to saving the lives of people, takes an action that our culture has decided is an acceptable form of birth control and takes the life. This is why we have to look at our culture right now and we have to answer this question of the value and the dignity and the sanctity of human life. We have to look at the culture and we have to tell them the truth that the baby that's inside a mother is distinct, is unique. It's life that has a value and worth that has been given to it by God, all of our Creator, because it is human life and we should protect it and we should nurture it and we should not discard it just throwing it out with the trash. I think the implications of this are far-reaching. When we lose our regard for human life, we see this, right? We see the implications of this loss of regard for human life. Look at every mass murderer in the history of the world. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. What do these men have in common? All of them killed millions of people. And they did it because they perpetrated the lie that humans had no value or worth or rights beyond whatever the state and the society said they were worth. And this is why Christians have to stand our ground on this core belief of the Christian faith. Because when we don't, and there is no one standing to proclaim that human life is valuable and worthy to be protected, protected and not carelessly killed and murdered, it opens the doors to numbers and atrocities even worse than even the horror of 60 million dead babies in the last 60 years. This is a spiritual battle, and we can't give up our stance that human life is given by God and in the hands of God, and that it is wrong for man to fail to care for and respect it accordingly. Because when we do, a door opens, and we're going to be horrified by what we find behind it. We're not the first people who have had to wrestle against this lie, right? In Leviticus 20, God gives Israel instruction and he makes it clear to Israel that child sacrifice is not something that they are to partake in. It's, it's an evil action. That says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Molech, to make my sanctuary unclean and 
to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do all do it all, close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech, and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and will cut them off from amongst their people, him and all who are following him in whoring after Molech. This is not a crime to mess around with in Israel, is it? If you offer your child up to be sacrificed to this false god, God tells them, you put that man to death. Because that man has seen fit. Molech was a pagan god in the land of Canaan. And he was famous for having children uh, sacrificed to him. And you know how they did it? They had a statue of Molech where they heated his hands incredibly hot. And they took the baby and they placed it on these burning hands of this false god, this idol. You want to see why God calls for that man who sacrificed his child to be put to death. That's why. The Lord tells them they are not to commit or even allow for this type of atrocity in their nation. America is not the first nation to allow for and partake in child sacrifice. And just like it was for Israel, this is a spiritual battle first and foremost. And we have to understand the spiritual nature of what we're doing here and what we're, what we're wrestling against. At the heart of that, we have to be willing to stand on God's design for human life. And we have to wrestle against those that would try to undermine it. And we have to wake people up to the lives that are being perpetrated. That justify abortions is just some kind of medical procedure. It's just some kind of uh, birth control. Right? Because nobody's putting their hands on the altar of a burning metal idol today. Not yet, at least. But it's still idolatry. If that woman has that baby, she can't go get that degree. She can't go get that job. She can't make that money that she needs. We're not sacrificing our children at the hands of Molech. We're sacrificing our children at the hands of our own prosperity. This means we have to affirm the sanctity of every human life. And we have to affirm to a culture, to this culture, to every culture, the blessing that it is to have children. Right? There's a message that stands in stark contrast to what the world is pushing. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, speak of that like this. David writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We have to speak this truth to the world around us. We see it. More and more people are abandoning this blessing that it is to have children. We see people say, well, the world is so violent. I don't want to raise a kid in this world. right?" Or, I just don't have what I need to raise a kid right now. You know, I don't want to raise my child in poverty, right? Who would want to raise in poverty? I probably, if I took a show of hands, every one of us would sit there and say, I'm thankful my parents had me in spite of their poverty, amen? We're saying we don't want kids because we don't want them to grow up poor? 
There are all manner of lies being passed on to people that try to convince um, them that children are a curse that will hinder our lifestyle. And I'm not calling you, I'm not telling you to go and try and have huge families, right? If you do, if you've got 15 kids, that's amazing. God bless you. And we just praise Lord for his, uh, for his grace that he's given you and having that fruitful womb, right? Now raise those kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And if you have one, praise God. Thank you for his blessing. Raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We have to speak this message to the culture that children are a blessing to our lives, not a curse. Raising kids is hard. I'm not standing here telling everyone it's the easiest thing they're going to do and it's a blessing just because it's just fun and games all the time. It's not. It's not, right? But just because something is hard and tiring and requires effort and patience and care on our end does not mean that it's not good. Typically, anything of value requires that kind of dedication. We live in a culture that's abandoned the view that children are a blessing because we live in a culture that has abandoned the truth that human life is given to us by God in heaven and that we are made in his image. We have to stand on God's word and how we are to respect and treat human life. First and foremost, as we respond to our culture, because our culture has given up that truth and in turn has given up the foundation, foundational reason to treat human life with the respect it deserves. This is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. We have to stand and fight the lies of the devil in the spiritual battle. All right, the second part of our response, I'm trying to speed up, is that our rights and our opportunities, or we need to take opportunities to exercise our rights as citizens in this nation to advocate for the unborn, right? You're a citizen of the United States. You get to vote. You get to go out and you get to gather with others in public. You get to protest. You get to use these avenues these legal means, these rights you have as citizens to go out and do these things. Take advantage of those as the Lord leads you. Not everybody's going to be directed the same way. It may be you put a sign in your yard and that's the, that's the level of courage that you have. That's okay. Take it. Use it. You may have so much anger and frustration and you're so tired of seeing it that you're out there uh, outside the abortion mill praying and talking to people. Do it. If God's put that on your heart, don't sit idly by and be the one that just passes a blind eye to what's going on. Let's take advantage of that. And let's advocate for the unborn. I know the world has much to say about Christians uh, speaking up on this issue, right? And they'll look at us and they'll try to say, stop pushing your religion on us. Stop pushing your religion on us. Freedom from religion. To which I have two things to say to that. One, the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So yes, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to proclaim the gospel to you because I don't want that knee to bend out of horror and terror of the judgment of God. I want it to bow in the fear and the love and the reverence of your Heavenly Father. The second thing to which I have to say to people who tell us, stop pushing our religion on them, stop pushing your religion on me. We live in a country, thankfully, where we have the ability to share with people what we think and what we believe. And we have to go and engage this culture with that, right? And stop telling, letting the culture tell us to be quiet. No one is neutral. No one is coming to this place out of a position of neutrality. Everyone has thoughts and opinions 
and presuppositions that they're coming to this conversation with. Don't give up yours. Don't give up the foundation of the Bible. Don't give up the truths of what God has given us about who man is, our nature and our worth and our dignity, just because somebody says, stop pushing your religion on me. Stand on the word of God unashamedly. Why? Because it is in this place it is in this place right here that we find a message of light, a message of light that shines brightly against the darkness of the lies of abortion. This is the place where we see the greatest contrast to the message of the lies that are there, and this is the reason why they try to shut it up before you ever even try to bring any truth from it to the situation. Don't give that up. Don't be afraid of using the Bible and engaging that, right? All right, last point. Last point, we need to preach and we need to pray for transformation. This is a spiritual battle. That was the first sort of aspect of our response. A spiritual battle means it needs a spiritual solution. What is that spiritual solution? Amen. It is the gospel. It is the good news of the gospel, right? Because the gospel takes people who are far from God, who are enemies of God, who have no hope of ever being right or before God ever again, and it makes them children of God by placing the, the clothing of light and righteousness of Christ who has died for us to sacrifice himself for our sins and puts us back in God's favor. It makes us spiritual children of the Lord. It's the gospel. It's the good news that we were dead, that we've all believed lies, we've all believed Satan, we've all followed the patterns of this world, and now, because of the work of Christ, opening my eyes to my sin, now I'm a child of God. And it's changed everything I thought that was true about the world. Because I believe God is who He says He is. And I believe that He has made me who He said He's made me. We have to speak this message of the gospel because there are moms who have had an abortion that feel hopeless. There are people who have been involved in pushing abortions and pushing this as some sort of a, a woman's choice that need to hear the gospel, that need to repent and believe and find hope. We need to preach the gospel because we don't want to see people perish. So we go and we speak the truth and we preach the gospel that we are lost and we are dying sinners who need the light of Christ to open our eyes to our sin so that we may be justified by God through His Son Jesus because we're all sinners and we're all dead. And we're only made right with him. We're only changed. We're only saved through the blood of Christ, right? That's the message that's going to change hearts and open eyes. And though we may take efforts that are good through, say, political processes or other means, right? Because we want good and just laws in place. We don't, if somebody came to you and said, yeah, we're going to take uh, the law against murder off the books today. Should we say something about that? We probably should, Right? We want good and just laws on the books. So those are good things to pursue. But ultimately, that is not going to be the thing that changes hearts. And that's what we want to see. We want to see people come to Jesus, not bowing a knee to us, not bowing a knee to what we think, but bowing their knee to the one who has made them, to the one who has created them, to the one who has given them value and dignity and worth and purpose in the first place. And we want them to do that now before they stand before his throne in judgment. 
And I think at the fundamental, the fundamental uh, basis of the fundamental basis of this, the fundamental question we have to ask to help us get to that point, right, is understanding who we are and who God made us to be. We have to understand that God has made man with intrinsic value, intrinsic worth. That we don't get to decide whose life is valuable and whose life is not. That's God's to decide. And when we bend the knee to God in that, God moves in our lives in powerful ways. Our eyes are open, not just to the truth and the horror, the truth of who He is and the horror of abortion, but it opens our eyes to our need for a Savior. It opens our need our eyes to our need for Jesus. So look to God today and know that he has made us in his image and that he has given us value and worth and dignity. There is a sanctity to the lives of people that we remember and we defend and we speak truth to the powers and principalities of this world too. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. Lord, I thank you, God. Thank you for this time and this opportunity to open your word. God, I pray that everything that has come out of my mouth is words that uh, ultimately grow our love for you, Father, grow our knowledge of you. God, let every moment and every breath just be in sheer reverence to you. So we praise you. We thank you. Let us be light in a dark world as we uh, wrestle with a culture that um, views the value of human life uh, um, with such little regard. Just praise you right now, God. Use us to, uh, to bring truth and light in people's lives and bring hope of the gospel to people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.